This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today from Tokyo in Japan. On the podcast today, we have Ji-Yun Beck, a doctoral student in public policy at Oxford University's Blavatnik School of Government, who will be talking about her book, North Korea's Hidden Revolution, How the Information Underground is Transforming a Closed Society, which was published in 2016 by Yale University Press. We're now in what may be one of the most important periods for North Korean affairs in recent memory, a fact which has raised excitement at the prospects of significant change in the country. But as my guest today, Jian Beck, will tell you, meaningful change has been afoot in North Korea for much longer than just the past few months. Much of this has come in the form of transformations in the kind of information that North Koreans have access to, whether foreign, often South Korean, television or music, news reports offering citizens alternatives to Pyongyang's official media narratives, or even entertainment produced by North Koreans who have escaped the country and then beamed back shows into their former homeland, DPRK citizens today live in a much more informationally diverse society than the all-too-common hermit kingdom label would imply. In addition to this, many other goods and resources are entering the country from outside, with everything from mobile phones to medicine and hard cash being sent via an elaborate network of smugglers, traders and intermediaries. As well as being for personal use, such items are also increasingly bought and sold at this once more socialist country's ubiquitous public markets. All of this is covered in fascinating detail in Gian Beck's book, which, engaging and rich in personal reflections throughout, also puts these striking changes into their wider social and political context. Beck does not by any means shy away from the cruelty and fear which continue to be part of daily life in North Korean society, but the story she so deftly tells offers a window into a far wider range of human experience than we're used to hearing about this country, which, we can hope at this new moment of possibility, may be set to change still further. But to discuss all of this, and perhaps even the contemporary moment itself, I'll say, Gian Beck, welcome to the podcast. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, well, thanks very much for, for appearing, and uh, I'm looking forward a lot to talking about this uh, excellent book. Um, but perhaps before we get into it, I could begin by asking you uh, about yourself and how you came became interested in, in the subject. Um, I mean, I think it's particularly interesting, and you could give us a feel for why it is that, uh, or how it was that, that uh, a book came out, uh, and you're currently a doctoral candidate, which is uh, kind of the other way around to a lot of the guests that we have on the show. Right. So this was all quite unplanned. Um, not in the sense that I, I mean, I've been interested in North Korea for a very long time. Um, it, my interest was sparked in the, in the first couple uh, months of college, which was many years ago. And uh, after college, I was working at Google. And that's when I got to think about how to integrate my uh, seemingly disparate interests in human rights and world affairs and technology, um, and was able to think about how to integrate those into a meaningful way. And so um, I, I continued to get involved in projects in and out of the company and, you know, just read a lot and um, talk to people in this field and a lot of people who've escaped from North Korea and just sort of developed a richer understanding of um, of North Korea and just general affairs on the peninsula. Uh, I did, then I went back to school to do um, a master's in public policy where I uh, was able to spend a significant amount of time with the late ambassador Stephen Bosworth and um, my advisor, Professor Graham Allison, and was able to um, hone in on some of the specific strands of interests that I had um, centered on North Korea. So I, I wrote a couple pieces here and there, and an, an agent was um, interested, a literary agent, reached out to me and pitched this idea of writing a book. And at that point, I was quite apprehensive because exactly what you said, I didn't have a PhD back then. Um, 
and honestly didn't have serious plans to ever pursue a doctorate. But um, but one thing led to another, and I ended up writing this top this book on a subject that I am very passionate about, and I know many others are as well. And so the process of writing the book got me interested in continuing uh, research on on subjects that I'm very passionate about. So I did what is um, a, a, a pretty commonly reversed sequence of what most people do, which is writing a book first and then doing a doctorate. And, and in terms of your involvement, you, you kind of uh, line things up a little in, in, in the first pages of the book in terms of your personal involvement with North Korea and your first visit there and some of your activities, uh, as I understand, as a, even as an undergrad, um, what, what kind of uh, initial steps did you two have in, in being involved in the country at that point? Oh, as an undergrad. Um, so I didn't go to North Korea until way later and until, yeah, um, so this was maybe, let's see, about four years after graduating. But um, for undergrad, I mean, I, we were, I was involved with a lot of um, awareness raising events uh, in in various human rights aspects of the country, and I think that's how a lot of college students in and out of the United States initially get interested in the country, which is through this very um, a very specific human rights lens, which is critical for everyone to I think um, get a handle on um, when studying North Korea. Uh, but since then, my interests have broadened out. So it's, it hasn't shifted away from human rights by any means, but it has certainly broadened out um, to try to understand various dimensions of the country um, and, it's, and their, and their uh, bilateral relationship with the United States as well. I see, I see. And in terms of the actual material that went into the book, um, it, it's based uh, on a lot of uh, first-hand interviews with people who've left the country. Um, at, at what point, where did that fit in, in, in terms of gathering that information and, and practically putting it together? Right. So in terms of my original interviews, there are, I think there's about a dozen or so people that I highlight, um, the dozen or so people stories that I highlight and integrate throughout the book. Um, but just to be clear, this book is, for those who may have not read it, um, it is certainly not an anthology of stories. Uh, this is something that I would like to do some other time. But what I hope to do, what I was trying to do with the book was to have a narrative arc uh, following the history of the role that information, foreign information has played in the country for the past 30 or so years. And I wanted to um, integrate people's very fascinating and at times heartbreaking stories to flesh out that outline and bring um, uh, the much needed human element to this over overarching narrative arc in terms of getting the in terms of getting the the original interview material um, I went to Korea and I conducted all sorts of interviews with North Korean defectors as well as key informants and by that I mean people who have studied this for um, a long time and have been involved in this in, in this work. So they may be um, individual experts in this field. The people who are doing who are writing radio programs into North Korea, or people at Hanawon, or people at uh, the Ministry of Unification, or other human rights activists and missionaries and so forth. So I got a a lot of different types of interviews, but I really tried to focus on really understanding. Um, people from North Korea and their experience with in, um, information when they were in the country. And so I conducted a lot of interviews for this book with their informed consent um, after I signed a contract with the, with, the, you know, with the press. I don't know if this is getting too nitty gritty, but a, a, no, lot no, of, I... a lot of the conversations I had prior to the book um, definitely informed my writing. But of course, just to be very technical, you know, without anyone's informed consent, I didn't include any, any quoted material. Mm, absolutely. Well, no, I think I think uh, this is this is definitely uh, uh, suitable material for us to for us to understand about putting a, a thing like this together. Because actually, a lot of the richness of this book is in the personal dimension, both from your own uh, your own angle, and, and you mentioned uh, in, at the beginning that um, it was uh, t- two of your grandparents were from uh, from the nor- the northern half of the peninsula, if that's correct, um, and then. Uh, Late, the, the, the personal aspect, of course, in, in how you convey the story of the uh, changing um, picture of North Korean society and so on that, that fills the book is also uh, where the tremendous, I guess, strength of what makes the, the book so compelling. Um, but I think we'll, we'll, we'll go into it uh, with, with that. Um, 
as I say in, in the early pages, you, you set the sort of reasons for doing what you're doing up and, and also you have uh, yeah, kind of a list of uh, the various protagonists just to give us a, a bit of a profile of some of the uh, often anonymized, uh, but, but nevertheless uh, real, real people um, who provided you with a lot of the information that's in there. Um, the people you talk to uh, obviously are often called defectors and uh, in English. And I, and I, and I guess uh, in t- as we understand uh, the terms in which the book is presented, perhaps you could say a bit about the choice of vocabulary in, in even discussing this kind of issue. Um, what are the choices you have to make around using the term defector and what other, what other terms are there out there? Right. And I, this is something I'm, I'm particularly um, interested in because, you know, we all hate being labeled or categorized into something, especially if we don't agree with that category or that label. Um, and I, I think f- for simplicity's sake or for argument's sake or just for consistency's sake, a lot of authors, including myself, um, make an informed decision to stick with a word and then kind of continue to use that term unless otherwise noted. I've asked this I've asked a lot of my interviewees and friends who are from the are from the north um, what terms they they uh, feel least uncomfortable with um, or most comfortable with, and they they differ in English and in Korean. So some of the listeners uh, on this podcast may be familiar or speak Korean, but there are all sorts of terms to. Um, to describe North Korean uh, defectors, so there it could be you know taibukja or setamin or you know all these other kind of permutations of that, which basically means like you know, new citizen in the South or someone who's escaped North Korea or someone who's a dissident from North Korea. In English, um, a lot of I think generally the term that people use in 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 um, kind of culture and broader cultural context and media and so forth is defector. Uh, that maybe escapees. Some people use that term. Other use dissidents. Um, other use just former North Koreans or North Koreans who've settled in you know U.S., South Korea, or you know insert other country of, of resettlement. Um, some have preferred the word friends from North Korea, or others just say to me, "Call me Stephen," or "Call me." John Kim. That's it. That's that is who I am, and that's what I identify with. And I, I really understand that. I, I really want to, you know, understand that sentiment. For the for the sake of writing a book that is um, easy to understand, uh, I ended up selecting the word defector in English, um, just purely for consistency sake. Um, yeah, that's that's that's. It, yeah. it, it, no, it makes it makes sense. It's Just not a perfect choice. choices like these have to be exactly. made. Exactly, and I and right, I do right. add a bit of um, um, a little bit of throat clearing around the subject um, in the earlier pages. I, mm. I think it is something that's essential to try to to, to understand the complexity of the term. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And I think the, the kind of range of terminology that you laid out there it makes it clear why the the kind of decision is such a difficult one because so many of these terms are, are, are so, so politically charged and and really uh, you know set you off on the wrong foot if you're trying to provide the kind of human portrait that that you do provide in this book it, it, you don't want to uh, prejudge by having a label that makes um uh, makes certain people seem a certain way because uh, and and this is really my next question there are a whole diversity of reasons why people have left certainly you know many many of them are not sort of you know Solzhenitsyn-esque uh, critics of the regime kind of people um so could you give a sense of what we, the, the broad picture of why people leave and and who also is it, uh, the, the, the people that you spoke to are kind of wh- where they came from right. their background and, and i appreciate this question because um this and it links to the previous question when some when some north korea watchers um sweepingly refer to North Koreans who've, who've escaped their country as dissidents. I think that's a term that is um, inaccurate. There's no term that's going to be, you know, categorically relevant to everybody, but I think dissident is certainly not one of them because um, like you just said, there's many reasons why people leave and some of them do leave for political reasons. Um, and many of them don't. Many North Korean people do not escape for political reasons. And so I think dissident is certainly not the proper term to refer to everybody. In terms of some of the reasons, I mean, you ask 10 people why they left and you'll get 12 reasons. Um, but I think and, and the reasons, the general, the most common reason tends to change over time, um, uh, depending on what era of, um, of North Korean modern history we're looking at. 
But just to give a sense to some of the listeners, it could be purely for economic reasons, um, just to f- go to a place where they, they have more food and resources for one and one's family to survive. Um, many, some individuals, especially in the 90s and early 2000s, um, left North Korea with fully intending to find resources and come back into the country to support their families who were in much dire situations. Um, I think a lot of there's a lot of language around what I just described, this phenomenon of returning back as like redefection or double defection or something like this. Um, no, it, the idea wasn't to escape. The idea was to leave in order to come back to support. Many individuals, of course, um, in, intend to leave the country fully expecting to resettle in a, in a new country, whether that be South Korea, US, UK, or wherever else. Um, some of the, I think it just tends to be so that um, people from the elite echelon, political intellectual elite of the country tend to leave for uh, more political reasons because they're generally not the ones who are extremely resource poor. They may some of those individuals may become disillusioned with their governments, um, their the governance system, um, or some individuals across the class system uh, may find themselves in a very precarious situation for whatever political a- alleged crime they've committed, and they have no choice but to escape. Otherwise, they have to face some penalty for some alleged crime. And so, in those instances, we see some people making an overnight decision to defect because purely out of self, you know, out of survival purposes. Um, and then there's other, there are other reasons where other groups of people who want to defect um, to rejoin family members who defected earlier on. Um, and those are some of the very, very personalized reasons why some people uh, decide, decide to take the life risking a decision to defect. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and I mean, I, I guess I should obviously clarify that asking the question, why would people leave isn't to uh, question their, the, you know, the justification of their choices. There are clearly many things about the country that, that you lay out in pretty stark terms in the book that make it clear why, you know, the, the, the number of reasons there are to leave are also as numerous as, as people's own personal motivations. Um, and but, but also just in terms of the numbers, um, again, for context, um, how, how many people overall are we, are we talking about in terms of people who've left over time? Um, are, there, are there difficulties in establishing specific, uh, definite figures? Yes. So we don't, I don't know how many people have escaped the country, but we do have figures, publicly released figures of numbers of um, North Koreans who resettled in certain countries. So in South Korea, there's about, there's a little, there's a bit over 30,000. So I think it's about 32,000 or so at this point. Um, individuals who settled and received South Korean citizenship. There are a, bit, uh, a few over 220 um, individuals who've resettled in the United States. Um, there's a rough estimate about of around 1,000 individuals in the United Kingdom. And then um, several hundreds of um, individuals in Germany and Austria and Canada, sorry, Australia, Canada, and some other um, places. Now there's a, a large number of un- impossible to verify number of individuals in China um, who've escaped. And um, because the Chinese government continues to not recognize North Korean defectors as um, as, uh, refugees, but rather illegal economic migrants, um, North Koreans who are hiding in China to this day are not safe to come out. Um, And if they are caught, uh, come out as in like come out from hiding, if they are caught, they will be forcibly repatriated to North Korea, where they face severe punishment. So we don't know the number of people who are hiding in in China. There are all sorts of estimates, and um, and uh, you know, some range from fifty thousand hiding in China. Some estimates range up to half a million. I, I personally don't know, um, but I think the the big takeaway from that point is um, those individuals are really are not safe. And uh, the children born in China are not safe. They are truly stateless, the children of North Korean defectors in China. So um, the the plight does not end just because someone has escaped from North Korea. No, absolutely not. And actually, from from what you say, if the figures, although very hard to verify, span 
uh, that kind of a range, then that makes that group the largest single cohort of people who've left the country considerably more than those who have made it to South Korea. Um, so the fact that all of those people are living in such difficult circumstances obviously gives a sense of the, uh, the, the severity of the, of the situation. Um, but we'll move on then perhaps into, uh, I guess, the the richer picture of their of the lives that they left and, and what we can understand about specifically this uh, information revolution that you're that you're talking about so you discuss in the first chapter uh, a kind of history of, of of how north korea came about um and and what, what kind of a place it is um but i really like this uh this discussion because actually it um gives uh, a particular angle on what i guess to people familiar with uh, modern East Asian history is a somewhat uh, known story, but but you look at the history of North Korea through the kind of lens of, of information and, 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 and how the, uh, especially how the government has sought to maintain a certain kind of informational sphere. So could you say something about how the North Korean government would like, if you like, I mean, not to, <laughs> not to invite you to really put your shoe, put, put yourself in the shoes of those people, but, but what can we tell about uh, the kind of informational landscape that Pyongyang tries to ensure is is uh, the case or has tried to ensure over time in, in right. North Korea. So it is, so the, I think ideally if they had it their way, and again, I don't want to put myself in their shoes, but just from what we could observe as, as outsiders, um, there has been every attempt uh, conceivably imaginable to try to control the information production, circulation, and consumption in the country. So without getting into any of the foreign materials getting in, before we even talk about that, um, all the newspapers, the magazines, the television shows, the movies, the radio programs, um, all of this material, uh, every word, every period, every image placed, what pages they're placed on, everything is controlled centrally, um, centrally. And undergoes multiple levels of screening before they are then published for North Korean citizens to consume. Much of that material is actually uh, um, viewable for foreigners. Um, you know, you and I and the listeners can start and right now. We can go online and um, pull up their their um, news channel and their uh, television station. Maybe not television station that easily, but news channel. It's their their news is. Um, translated in multiple languages and and of course not everything that is published domestically is published for a foreign audience but much much of this material is actually um accessible for foreigners right at our desks wherever we're sitting around in the world um so everything is so everything that's produced is centrally controlled and everything that is um circulated for citizens consumption is also uh controlled as well so you know we hear all these crazy stories of radios being placed in every room and every home and office and that is um, largely true um it's really impossible to verify that in like very very underdeveloped rural areas which is many parts of north korea but there are radios not only in inside homes and offices and schools but also um outside so as people are walking if there's an announcement it just kind of comes it comes on and um television station televisions and radios um that people buy that are made in north korea or somehow been um sold through north korean market like stores are controlled so that people cannot um, tamper with and access foreign stations. Now, a lot of this is changing on the fringes, and we can talk more about that in our next bit. But that's that. Um, yeah, and now with more more devices that are being manufactured in North Korea, like cell phones, Android use being cell phones, tablets, and laptops, um, there are now much more rigorous and comprehensive ways for the government to control information consumption on a digital level. So, that, so if anything, um, the government is becoming much more savvy to control um, the information flows among its citizens through digital means. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Right, right. I mean, I guess this is the this is the constant sort of dialectic that's there, isn't it? I, the kind of technology revolution that has happened globally has has been seen in some quarters as what may initially have been seen in some quarters as a, a way of uh, people finding each other and and uh, generating solidarity and fighting causes and uh, a kind of potential for uh, ordinary people to, to advance their own causes but actually what we've seen um, and I guess this is a global phenomenon but um, notably uh, in North Korea's giant neighbor China is that actually um, governments can do can, can use the very same technology to if anything strengthen their uh, the, the vice like grip that they have over uh, the information that is kind of circulating on some at least in some, you know, on some level within within the country um, but we'll move on uh, into on to the level of I guess that the, the actual people who are your main concern here. Um, in light of uh, that kind of very strict con- uh, control that Pyongyang seeks to exert over the information environment, uh, we have this notion of uh, information crimes, essentially, which which are treated very severely and, and you discuss in the second chapter, cracks in the system. Um, so could you discuss uh, a bit about um, what sorts of yeah, uh, acts constitute information crimes uh, and, and also yeah, and how they're punished? Right. And a caveat before I get into this bit, I think a lot of people are interested in this bit because it's, you know, it's so dramatic and it's so unfamiliar to anything that we, um, especially people born in consolidated democracies, have experienced. So I do want to make the following caveat that what I say is they're all general, they're generalities. There are, of course, nuances and, you know, exceptions and so forth. Um, so with that kind of out of the way, um, so information crimes. So, I mean, these these crimes, these uh, rules are codified in their criminal code. So, and it's been translated into English and other languages uh, from Korean. So, if anybody wants to look this up and um, see for yourself, you're absolutely more than welcome to do so. So, the very act of consuming unauthorized information from the outside um, through an unauthorized device is, in and of itself. Um, it, it, that in and of itself could be considered a political information crime. Now, um, the very act, and let's we can break that down. So, the very act of having a unauthor, an unauthorized foreign-made device is very sensitive because there's the potential that one could access more sensitive information. That's that's one. Another one is if one is accessing foreign information no matter how unpolitical and uninteresting that may be, the content may be, um, that is one step towards engaging with potentially imperial, quote-unquote, imperialist decadent culture or becoming a participant of the counter-revolution. So basically a revolution that's against the North Koreans' regime's pursuit to, to... to maintain a successful uh, uh, regime. Um, so that's the overarching framework in which we could then look at much more um, specific examples. And so, and, and, that, and then with that becomes, the, there's gradations of what becomes quote unquote more criminal and less criminal. Um, some of the variables that we can think about are like, who is catching the individual? Um, who is the individual? Is that person very elite, very important, very not? Um, what are they being caught with? Were they watching um, a silly Russian, maybe like a Russian, I don't know if comedic and Russian really go together, but you know, is, that, is that person watching like a Russian um, animation for children, which may be a little bit less sensitive um, uh, of a crime? Or is that person watching um, like a, a romance, a, a romantic comedy or something made in France or, or South Korea or something like that, which would be considered much more criminal? Um, and, and then depending on that, um, individuals we doled out doled out at various sentences and now like the, the, this this kind of crazy story out there that oh if a North Korean is caught with any foreign information they're going to be shot to death. That's not necessarily true 
um, at all. I mean, there are many instances of individuals who have become scapegoats or who have become the un- who are the unlucky people to be publicly executed for information crimes. And the fact that we even say that and think that's part of any normal world is insane, but it's absolutely true. But it's not true for 100% of the people who are caught. There are other very, very severe punishments like sentences to political person camp or re-education camp or labor camps between six months to many years. Um, In very bad cases, when an individual is caught circulating information, not only is one watching or consuming stuff, but they're actually um, making copies and they're circulating, that person will definitely get in a lot of trouble. And so it really does depend on what the alleged quote-unquote crime is um, and if that person is unable to bribe their way out of out of the situation. But right, right. Yes, all of you, it, yes go ahead. And when you mentioned the, the, the bribe, actually, just, just to pick up on that, the, the kind of bribe culture that has uh, become a part of, of, of day-to-day life, um, is this still something that is very uh, – you, you kind of discuss it in the context of uh, the, the, the early 2000s and when, I guess, uh, more sort of information was starting to come into the country by various, by various means. Um, is, is this – yeah, is bribery uh, an option for anyone who has the kind of money or is the strictness of the state's enforcement of that often – but blind to even the possibility that bribes uh, could be a way out. So yes and no. And for listeners who want to uh, read more about this, I think um, North Korea Inc. Uh, it's a work that North Korea Incorporated work that um, Dr. John Park and um, Jim Walsh have been working on for years. This is, you know, they've written a lot on this topic of, and it's more on um, North Korean shell companies, but there's a lot of work on bribery. And I think it's fascinating um, where, in which case like bribes are actually just incorporated as another business cost. It's not even considered really a bribe. Um, so, but in this context where it's much more individualized and, um, and political. So I think there's, from what I've gathered and listened to um, over the years from North Korean defectors and researchers, most people not only need to, but have to bribe their way into and out of what we would normally consider daily activities. And so uh, whether an individual wants to set up her uh, vendor shop in the middle of you know a market but she doesn't have a permit she may have to pay an extra bribe or if she wants to get a better s- spot in the market even though she does have a vendor permit she may still have to pay up the the, the uh, people a bribe um, if you are caught if if um if a local police or or um, a monitor grabs a student randomly which th- that person is more than able to do and say hey let me see what's on your cell phone without without any probable cause and that student is caught having listened to a Korean song or a jingle or something like that. Um, that in and of itself, exactly, sorry, a South Korean song. Um, that in and of itself is a crime, but maybe that student could bribe his or her way out of that situation. Um, but then if certain political, if certain alleged crimes are just way too high, then it may be really difficult to to use money to get out of the situation. Mm, mm, I see. Well, and, and I, I think uh, you, you, you reflect on some of these uh, very uh, specific situations, all of this, I should uh, reiterate, is, is, is brought out in the book in tremendous richness from first-hand accounts uh, of, your, of your interlocutors. And, and this particular, I think, case of, of bribery and so on just shows the extent to which uh, the kind of information sphere has been changing in step with uh, certain economic patterns in the country and, and a kind of marketization, which uh, we may we may return to in a second. Um, but moving forward in the book, you you, you uh, just just sort of jump back. I mean, I was particularly uh, taken by what you said uh, just a, a moment back about uh, the difference between uh, situations where North Koreans may be consuming, for example, a Russian kids show. Um, for the record, I'd actually say that uh, humor and Russian definitely go together uh, on many occasions. Uh, but uh, the uh, difference between that and, and say something from a more unequivocally capitalist or, or kind of enemy country, the way it follows some of these contours, perhaps of, of politics that North Korea has long been stamp, uh, sort of lodged in um, old Cold War dynamics, maybe even. But um, in the third chapter of the book, you talk about some of these kind of more established uh, ways of accessing information that North Korean citizens have had from rumor and gossip that circulates within the country and that gets in via uh, Chinese traders or people who travel uh, out to China and and then return, um, as well as uh, things we've heard about these kind of quite well-publicized 
events such as the launch of freedom balloons from South Korea over the over the DMZ into the north. Um, could you could you just give us a bit of a bigger picture there of the the, the sort of pre uh, hyper technologized uh, sources of of outside information that that North Koreans have had access to? Sure. So I believe in the book um, I have. Yeah, in the book, I I start with um, pretty low tech, and I, I guess that's that's an, uh, that's in and of itself is biased. But you know, VHS tapes and how they used to be brought in uh, way back when when North Korean diplomats would come back to the country from you know their their postings, and they would bring these things for their kids or whatever else. And that was just their very old kind of old kind of old school way of bringing information in. Um, but kind of moving forward to um, the 90s where people – there was a lot more um, flowing of information and people across the North Korean-Chinese border because of uh, markets developing and so forth. There were just very natural natural influx of information because people were working with traders, um, T-R-A-D-E-R-S, working with traders um, and just trying to see – you know, trying to gauge prices of thing, commodities they were trying to sell and buy. So. It, from what I can gather, it wasn't really politically motivated. Um, you know, what's the sta- what's the situation of U.S. DPRK relations? But it was much more like, what are the weather patterns going to be like? What price trends do you see for rice and so forth from China? And but through these interactions, people, you know, people are smart everywhere we go. People are people are uh, they have common sense wherever we go. And a lot of the North Koreans through those conversations were able to infer that wow, there China is much richer than. North Korea. South Korea is much richer than North Korea. Right now in 2018-2019, I would say the majority of North Korean citizens recognize their country is not that wealthy, especially in relation to many of the other countries that their government talks about. This is just kind of a known phenomenon now because of the level of information that's been circulating in North Korea since then. But so there's been, like you mentioned, other quote unquote low tech ways of foreign information trying to then intentionally be sent into North Korea. So with, with premeditated intent by actors from out physically outside North Korea. And those actors may be North Korean defectors or South Korean natives who are working with defectors or other Western uh, quote unquote do-gooders or churches or whatever else who are intentionally pushing information into the country. And, and some of those methods um, include, um, like we say, you know, the very well-publicized um, airborne balloon leaflets. And, um, and this is sending information, sending leaflets across bo- uh, boundaries and borders through uh, these airborne methods. You know, this has been a, a tactic, not only in the Korea context, but, you know, around the world for many, many years. So it's not new to the North Korean context. Um, Sending USBs is another very highly publicized way of how uh, uh, external actors try to push information in. These days, there's been a a couple organizations and entities trying to send over um, USBs and rice, raw rice, um, and US dollars and water bottles from South Korea to North Korea. I mean, there's all sorts of very creative, low-tech, if not non-technical ways people are trying to do this. And those are some of the examples that I am. I was with, with explicit um, permission, able to describe in the book. Also, these are just stories that are well publicized in the media. A lot of the tactics that I did not include were those that are absolutely not pro. Um, uh, they're not even low profile. They're they're non-existent on the public's radar because um, some entities and their and their strategies um, are much more. They're much more sensitive, and and um, I mean, this whole thing is sensitive. But they're much more um, covert, and 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 they don't want to attract any attention um, to their work, so that they can just keep on quietly pushing information in through not only different low tech means, but relatively high tech um, uh, uh, strategies. And uh, and this is something that perhaps we can talk about later. But the North Korean government is one that is not to be underestimated in, in all sorts of dimensions, but especially in this dimension of information penetration, because they are very aware that the foreign information has the um, potential. I mean, I won't speak for them. I, I can't. But I think that the reason why they're so sensitive to foreign information coming in is 
this type of stuff has foreign content has the potential to delegitimize North Korean regime's political legitimacy that they've been so carefully able to preserve for so many decades. Sure. Well, we can perhaps return to that in a sec. Uh, I mean, it's kind of something that, that you bring together really well at the end in terms of, you know, what is this doing or what's it for or, you know, what, what, are, what are the perhaps the longer term implications? Um, but uh, also uh, something that, that is, I think, um, something that really you, you shed a lot of light on that draws us away from some of these higher profile acts like sending in the the, the, the leaflets, the USB stick, I guess, is the real iconic uh, item in a way. It actually so much so that it's uh, it's there, kind of embossed on the on the book's cover. In fact, um, but you uh, you have um, that, that the USB stick, in a sense, gives us a bridge to the to the sort of digital side of things uh, because actually, you know, what's being what's going over there are things that can be played on little players that are also uh, kind of brought over and 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 how those things get there uh, is such an interesting process that I think you, you you do shed a lot of light on, as I say. Um, one thing that we've talked about just now is how outside groups are actively sending stuff in. So the motivation is coming from people wanting to push stuff into the country. But you reveal that actually when it comes to the more digital stuff, the, the underground, as you call it, uh, the heading of Chapter 4, there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of actual North Koreans interested in specific things and maybe able able to place orders for them and have them dispatched um could you give us a bit of more of a picture of uh, the dynamics uh, as they now operate with more digital information flowing in and how actually it's not just outside actors shoving stuff in there and hoping that some of it sticks or lands so between the writing of the book, which was um, 2015, and now, in the past four years, there's been a lot of development um, in not only for, um, external actors trying to get information in, but also North Korean government's capabilities, digital capabilities of trying to you know, really block this stuff from coming in. Um, they're, they're, they're soft, their devices, North Korean-made devices and software, are becoming they're loaded with essentially malware um, to uh, to really circumvent some of the information coming in, blocking blocking files from actually even opening on devices. So you know you stick in the USB uh, thumb drive into one's North Korea made laptop or tablet or whatever else, and the actual documents or files just won't open, um, and and so on and so forth. So so that's something I think is really worth keeping in mind, um, but. But what happens, what continues to happen um, before 2015, 16, until now is a lot of foreign actors, and by a lot, I mean, we're talking about like dozens, we're not talking about tens, you know, hundreds or thousands, um, continue to try to push in all sorts of material, all sorts of content through USBs, micro SD chips, other types of storage devices, um, through smuggling routes, through um, allied businessmen and women, all generally businessmen, um, and through all sorts of uh, human connections that they've been able to build with Koreans, which are um, ethnic Koreans living in China, um, and other people to try to just get smuggle this uh, smuggle some of this material in. Now, it's not just ran- foreigners kind of randomly supplying information. There is a huge demand for it. Um, I think there could be a lot better there could be much more um, attention paid to what the demand is. And some people do really you know, clever, innovative things to try to meet such very specific demands, like a certain television show or whatever else. But some of the, a lot of the demand is from what I can tell uh, from what I've gathered are um, the following news about North Korea. There's plenty of news made by North Korean government for the citizens to consume. But now, the citizens, especially the young folks born in you know late eighties and nineties and thereafter, they're quite savvy around the country, um, generally speaking, and they uh, they know that the government is not telling one hundred percent truth. I guess none of our governments are, uh, but especially when it comes to North Korea, and they want they and you know generations older than them want information about the region, about their own country. That's one. Other is just mat- more information about defectors. Um, just generally, but also, of course, um, information about their own loved ones who've left. And then 
And then um, just much just entertainment and media stuff that we all around the world want to watch and listen to, and we want to tune out or um, you know, just enjoy ourselves. The movies and various television shows and um, you know music and so forth. And there's a lot of other content that gets pushed in, you know, um, health and you know women's health and and um, econ one on one, business one on one, all sorts of other things, but. Information about North Korea and general entertainment um, is they're general, they they are um, consistently high in demand. Absolutely, yeah, and I, I think this is a, a, another a crucial dimension to the the, the picture you paint uh, that helps to sort of disrupt this uh, portrayal of of the of the country and the people who leave it as well as as defectors or dissidents or um, actually uh, to it really kind of. Um, disrupt that 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 politicization of everything by understanding that of course a lot of people just want to watch the latest hit uh, south korean uh, drama um and and that is then you know there's demand for that and then that is dispatched accordingly because there are people in the middle who can make money out of it um you you outline uh, in a in a separate appendix actually at the back but it but the kind of figures in this uh, circulation of goods appear throughout the book um what could, could you just uh, you, you describe how the kind of actual f- mechanism for sending something, say, from the south to the north via China works? Um, could you say a bit more about how that operates, and 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 again whether that has changed significantly uh, in the intervening time uh, in the last couple of years? Yes. So um, for decades, people have been smuggling things into North Korea. Um, and, and, and what you're referring to, I'm talking about um, family members or, or friends trying to get goods and money into the hands of their loved ones. So that's what I'm talking about right now. Um, and uh, there have been many individuals who have told me the types of, of goods they've been able to send their family through just a network of brokers from South Korea through China into North Korea. We're talking about um, uh, radios. And this is, you know, these are... the the following anecdote is from maybe a decade ago. Um, radios and and uh, certain medicines and of course cash and um, a lot of uh, and like female toiletries like um, you know, soaps and things like this. But but the, the important thing is the radio and I mean they're, they're all important. But the relevant part here is the radios, uh, medicine of course, and then cash. What's much more common, other in addition to these, you know, care packages, if you will, uh, is sending money, sending remittances um, back to their family members in the north. Uh, so uh, there continues to be a, a networks of brokers um, to get hard cash into the hands of um, parents and other loved ones in North Korea from their senders, who are you know usually family members who've defected to the south, and. The way this generally works is there's you know there's networks of brokers in like tracing from tracing from South Korea, China into North Korea, and the middlemen usually take about a thirty percent or more cut of the money being sent. And this is all knowledge. Most people, because it's such a uh, tight community, uh, this is all based on trust. If someone get takes the money, then you'll never have business again, pretty much. They take about a 30% cut, and eventually the family member in North Korea will receive about the remaining remaining 70% in cash, in hard cash. There are people, there are external actors trying to make this more efficient. Um, now, there's, I mean, as we can imagine, so many physical and technological constraints from trying to minimize uh, or trying to really push out the middlemen from taking the cut. But there, there are some, there's some innovations that are currently in the works to try to, um, in this remittance space in, for North Korea. Mm, mm. I one can imagine. I mean, it's just a constant kind of cat and mouse uh, game, really, when it comes to the physical, you know, the transfer of things, and the movement of people and technology, and even signals being sent over the border. Right? I mean, the the, the kind of exchanges and circulations that you discuss, uh, at least at the time of writing of the book, were often reliant on mobile phones, uh, Chinese mobile phones, being used right up on the border, so that they could catch Chinese phone signals and just call freely to South Korea because North Korean mobiles don't call abroad and and, and people could be up there but uh, you know speaking to people in the south from being sort of perched on the on the edge of the river there but I guess now you know there is increasing use of blocking technologies and so on the government is kind of catching up and trying to stop uh, use of those phones um, but uh, I guess 
uh, you've already hinted a few times at the kind of it, it, the youth and, and, and their interest in these things, and this is uh, the subject of your uh, your fifth chapter, a, a new generation rising. Um, you call it the, the, the kind of younger people who've grown up in the entire entirely or, or, or largely marketized era of recent North Korean history, the Jiangmadang generation, in reference to uh, these the markets that have, uh, that have sprung up all over the country. Um, so uh, I, I wonder. Could you say something a bit more about their profile and uh, what you know? Who are who are who are these young North Koreans and how have that? How has this changed information environment altered their outlook and their perspective on 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 the world? Right. So with the Changmadang generation, so Changmadang in Korean means like market or outdoor market, street market. And this is a term that a clever term that I certainly did not, I cannot take credit for. I just use it because it's been pretty widely used in the media. But essentially, this this uh, term is um, a loose synonym for North Korean millennials, and these are individuals who were born during or after the essential economic um, downturn. Some call it collapse in the mid '90s of North of North Korea, uh, where um, so yeah, so North Korea suffered a huge famine. In the mid '90s, coincided with Kim Il Sung's death in 1994, and um, also that's only a couple of years after um, the Soviet Union's collapse. Um, North Koreans' main lifeline uh, to to support their economy. So the economy pretty much, I mean, it really did collapse, and the public distribution system was no, uh, it was pretty defunct by then. So people had no choice but to turn to themselves and each other to survive. And so there was a huge. I mean, it's we call it a. a some call it, you know, the, it's known as the arduous march. So tons of people, I mean, every, an estimate of one to 2.5 million um, individuals in North Korea passed from starvation and the effects of starvation. So we don't really know the exact numbers, but a range from about 1 million to 2.5. During this area, uh, small markets popped up everywhere across the country, um, even though it was technically illegal because um, this is capitalistic activity. Fast forward to 2000. 19 and these tiny markets that people um, just sort of created out of thin air now comprise massive, massive outdoor markets across the country. There are satellite images, people who do uh, market analysis, like market analysis of North Korea, among other things, using satellite imagery. And there's an estimate, depending on how you define a large market, between 500 and 800 massive markets, each comprising over a couple hundred. Um, stalls per market. So people are now living off of, uh, uh, of of the markets, essentially. So these millennials or individuals who are born during or after this marketization of the country. So they're no longer taking a ration card from their mom and going to a distribution center to get food and you know clothing. They're going to, they're asking mom for money to then go to the markets and buy whatever mom tells them to buy. And maybe, you know, get some sweets and candies and things like that. And so um, so these individuals, so, you know, these kids, not kids anymore, uh, but these young um, folks are learning how to compare goods, compare prices, haggle, negotiate, trying to get the best deal for what they need to buy. And um, through that, you know, you inevitably um, have access to just market chat and gossip and prices and who's doing what, who's selling what, who, which vendors did they get it from, uh, which vendors in China are good. You know, so South Korean skincare is better than, you know, skincare from somewhere else. So you're inevitably going to be exposed to all this type of information very naturally. And so this generation is, uh, has, ex- has unprecedented levels of access to foreign information, um, just very naturally. I'm not just talking about young people watching movies all day long, and that, that may be the case for some. But generally, I'm speaking about individuals who just grew up on the markets, and they just know more about the world. And uh, that really substantively changes um, their perception of their state, their relationship with the state. And in turn, it substantively changes how the state needs to interact with this new generation and all the younger generations that may come after them. And so, and we see that from the North Korean government side, we're seeing um, pretty notable changes in the way they the, the way they are presenting their news or some of their shows and um, movies are a bit, I, I mean, I don't want to go to say like as far as savvy, but it's, it's not as, you know, hard, it's not um, 
as kind of old-fashioned socialist style anymore. And they're trying to come up with catchier songs and slogans. And there's like now advertising billboards sometimes for North Korean-made um, products. And um, they're loosening up on men and women's fashion and um, hairstyles and all these things to make their government uh, and culture a little bit less rigid around the fringes uh, to try to adapt to young people's preferences because um, the regime is very aware that the that the young people in this country, uh, they know a lot more than they quote unquote should. Mm, mm. I, I mean, it's absolutely fascinating that, that to, to, I think the, the uh, changes that I guess a lot of people have, have with paying any level of attention to uh, North Korean affairs in, in recent years have seen in terms of yet yeah, new kinds of uh, bands, new kinds of music, new kinds of television, and and also products uh, available. Um, it's it's really interesting, I think, and and uh, a real uh, the real value of, of of this book to see how that comes as a at least in in significant measure as a response to uh, taste and fashion and and and, and lots of these other uh, elements of of Jungwadan generation. Um, life that you that you talk about uh, in, the, in the in the final part of the book there um but um, so uh, to, to sort of finish up um i guess we kind of come full circle because uh, as you mentioned at the beginning uh, a lot of your interest stemmed from a somewhat sort of activist perspective on on, on north korea and an interest in in the human rights situation rather than just sort of you know casually ogling from the sidelines as, as i think all too many sort of north korea this kind of watcher community do um and and so your book very helpfully includes a chapter on implications predictions and, and a call to action as you put it what to what to do about this so in light of these kind of changes that you're saying uh, are occurring and uh, as a result of the sort of information revolution um where does that leave uh, people wanting to make a difference or or, or uh, kind of uh, how how should how should one uh, as an interested party approach approach north korea today in light of this sure i think one one lesson i've been learning along this whole along the way is yes north korean people are born in a, a very very different system than anything else on on earth today but i think it's really important to keep in mind that north koreans are are human beings and are motivated and um, want very universally human things. And um, I think just remembering to really not otherize or kind of just, you know, see them as some type of a, a spectacle is just really important to know. It's it's pretty politically incorrect way to say this, but I think that's just a really important thing to keep in mind for individuals who are interested in getting involved in some way. Um I think keeping in mind that information, foreign information consumption is really important, but it's not going to be the silver bullet to bring substantive positive changes to the country. And so um, keeping that in mind, um, like understanding that foreign information circulation is necessary, but it will not be a sufficient uh, condition for bringing positive change to this system is, is important to, to keep in mind. Another, another kind of, uh, I guess this is more of a cautionary tale than anything else, is uh, remembering that the regime is not you know, standing by idly and just sort of unaware of what's happening. They are very aware and so, and so, reading reading up on what the government is doing is really important. One, a couple of readings I could recommend are um, the writings by um, Intermedia by Nat Kretchen and his colleagues. That's I think essential reading. And then for those who actually do want to check out how they could support some of these initiatives, um, there are a lot of organizations out there. I won't say any. Um, in this podcast, but if you just Google it, you know, feel free to reach out to me personally. All my information is online. Um, there are individuals who are doing really good work, innovative work, um, driven by not only passion, but strategy and um, a sustainable uh, campaign. Um, and so um, that's just one very specific way to get to get involved. Um, but yeah, it's just a combination of cautionary tales and, and, uh, and a push for individuals to to learn more, to jump in. Yeah, well, I think that's a very, uh, sort of a very encouraging way of, of ending it. I, I was thinking I might ask you about what you think is going to happen uh, <laughs> in the next few x, x amount of time, but maybe I won't, uh, uh, you know, uh, trouble you with that with that kind of uh, prediction type <laughs> question because they're, they're never. We'll fair. have to have well, a whole other podcast for that. <laughs> well, sure. Well, write another write another book about it, and uh, we can we can discuss that. Um, but in any case, um, uh, Gian, thank you so much. Uh, we've taken up a good chunk of your time today, so I'm really grateful for. Uh, 
appear, your appearance here on uh, New Books in East Asian Studies. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. Uh, and uh, I, I actually, I also would just like to ask you before we do finally wrap up, what uh, is your kind of current work on? Uh, what, 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 what projects do you have on the go at the moment? Oh, right. Um, well, I'm trying to finish up my DPhil. That's for one, my, my doctoral dissertation. Um, I'm looking at early stage dissenters or first movers of dissent in authoritarian countries. And Burma is my country case study. Uh, so that's something I'm very passionate about as well. In terms of projects uh, uh, on, related to the North Korea side of things, um, there are a couple of projects that I'm on, um, all in the information space. Um, that's 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 uh, annoyingly vague. I recognize. <laughs> <laughs> well, I- but. Um, about what I will say is there are a lot of innovative opportunities for people to get involved. And one thing I hear a lot of people say is, oh, I don't know that much about North Korea or I don't really know um, how to get involved, but I am a very good engineer or I am a really good artist or digital design, software engineer or a digital uh, designer or a chef or whatever. You know, how can I contribute? My goodness, there are so many opportunities um, to, to get involved. Really do reach out to me if, if any of the listeners are interested. Um, we live in a world today where we, it, you know, we're getting rid of siloed work. And there's so many opportunities for interdisciplinary uh, approaches and processes and, and outcomes. And so if you have a skill and you're interested to get involved, please do reach out to me. Brilliant. Yeah, well, that, that's, a, that's a great way of, of, of wrapping up. Um, so, yes, thank you once again uh, for appearing, Gion. Uh, yeah, it was great to have you, and it's a fantastic book. Thank you, Ed. Take care. Thank you. And uh, thanks all you listeners for listening, as ever, to New Books in East Asian Studies, which is a podcast on the New Books Network. We'll speak to you next time. Goodbye.